Welcome to Because It Is, a conversation about faith, justice, and other things that matter. This podcast is hosted by Second Baptist Downtown in Little Rock, Arkansas. Second Baptist is a vibrant, historic downtown congregation whose faith compels us to seek justice, care for the oppressed, and pattern our lives after the way of Jesus. We are a unique Baptist church that prioritizes diversity and inclusion for all. In this episode, best-selling author Robert P. Jones discusses the church's role in perpetuating white supremacy and the church's responsibility in ending it. He challenges us all to join in the work of anti-racism in our communities, churches, and individual lives. Hi, everyone. Welcome to uh, this edition of Because It Is. I'm thrilled to invite uh, best-selling author and scholar of religion and public life, uh, Robert Jones, to the podcast today. And Robert, your work in the end of white Christian America and white too long has meant so much uh, as part of the formation of the people of my congregation in terms of learning about the problem of racism in our country uh, and also how we might be people of redemption in that regard. So you've been a friend to our church, uh, even if you didn't know it thus far. And so welcome to the podcast and we're most grateful for your work. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm I'm just humbled and honored to hear that. And um, uh, so glad to hear that. And I'm I'm really happy to be here. Great. It seems like your work stems from your biography. Um, one of my favorite Baptist theologians says that uh, biography and theology are often the same thing. So can you tell us why your passion for this work uh, seems so intrinsic to your identity and your own personal story? Yeah, I mean, in many ways, you know, uh, these last two books, um, The End of White Christian America and White Too Long, have been my finding my own way, really, you know, sort of you, you use the tools that you have at your disposal. I've been privileged to, you know, have, I've got a PhD in religion. So I've got these academic tools, um, you know, that I've been given. And um, so trying to kind of use that to really think about uh, my faith and, um, and, and try to get some, you know, uh, I think one of the hardest things is to get any critical distance on something you're raised in, right. Um, and, and, but trying to, get a better view for just an insider's view of, um, you know, the role that, that Christianity has played. I'm from Jackson, Mississippi, uh, grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm white for those who are listening and not, um, uh, watching, uh, but in my extended families from, uh, Macon, Georgia, that going back, you know, six generations in Macon, Georgia, Virginia before that. I mean, so we, you know, we've been part of the, you know, nation's founding and, and, but not in any, I think what's unique about it, not in any, you know, my family weren't generals and uh, huge plantation owners. I mean, we were like subsistence farmers and, um, you know, uh, and privates uh, <laughs> in, the, in, in, the, in, the arm, uh, in the Confederate Army and, um, uh, and, and in the Revolutionary Army, not, not, not high up on the food chain, but um, realizing just even then how, I mean, one thing I've been rep- wrestling with is just how wrapped up uh, with the project of white supremacy and the suppression of Native Americans and African Americans, uh, my family and my faith has been. So it really has been very, very personal. Um, kind of digging through the family tree, holding a family Bible that, that goes back to 1815 uh, that's in my 
you know, in, in downstairs in the in the study um, and uh, trying to think about those things together, um, along with things uh, like uh, estate uh, things from, uh, uh, you know, my, my sixth great grandfather that have got uh, enslaved people um, on them. So all those little artifacts and how does all that fit together? How's it made me and my family who we are and what's our responsibility? Yeah. It does seem to me, the more I think about my own journey and what I hear you saying of yours, that racism for so many people is more caught than taught. It's more of an implicit thing than an explicit thing. It's it's authors we haven't read. It's, it's mm-hmm. injustice that happened somewhere else. Uh, would you say that that's true of your journey and, and true of most white? Christians, especially in the South, that that racism was just part of the air that we were breathing. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, and I, I, but but the only thing I would say though is that um, even that description ends up being a little passive, right? Um, and the reason why it was possible to just be caught and not taught is because previous generations very explicitly set out a project to mark our churches, mark our town squares, mark our courthouses uh, with Confederate monuments, uh, with, uh, you know, things that, that, and those are, those are, um, you're right, they become part of the landscape, right? And so you grow up going by the town square and seeing that big Confederate soldier on top of that column, um, and it just sinks in uh, to you. But, but those things didn't get there, put there by accident. Those things were put there to do exactly that work, right? And and I think that's the challenge is realizing, oh, right, you know, we're the inheritors of um, very explicit, expensive, deliberate campaigns to hold on to white supremacy after the loss of the Civil War. Hmm. Yeah. So in my effort to help white people see this context, that's often so difficult to see, I've often thought if it would help us to think about white supremacy as a form of religion itself, mm. right? Like it, it has all the trappings of what we would think of with a religion. It has icons, it has saints, it has its own uh, doctrinal orthodoxy. Uh, what do you think about the notion that white supremacy might be understood as its own religion, even as it's, it's a tangled web within religion itself? Well, a couple of thoughts. I mean, you know, if you go places like um, like Richmond, uh, you can see a fairly straightforward manifestation of that. Um, there's a chapel, for example, that used to be on the old Confederate soldiers home uh, that's set up like a Christian chapel. But all the stained glass windows are the saints of the Confederacy. Hmm. Right. Uh, Lee Jackson, uh, uh, Jefferson Davis. And it's uh, what's kind of wild if you kind of read the history that, that those three in particular, Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, um, kind of began to function as a trinity, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and including taking on some of the attributes of the Christian, uh, you know, trinity. Um, and, and you've got, you know, the Stonewall Jackson became the kind of the, the, the god of wrath of the Old Testament, you know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, Lee, the more savior figure, more refined, uh, you know, uh, Jesus, Jesus figure. And in fact, you'll see uh, him uh, in some of those stained glass windows. Uh, they look like traditional iconography you'd see with Jesus, uh, you know, there. So there's that. Um, the, the other 
the tricky thing is that the, that's there. And even like in the, and you know, I live in Washington, D.C. now, and the Washington National Cathedral, you know, which is this um, place where you see funerals of presidents, uh, Billy Graham's, uh, you know, funeral was there, a kind of big uh, kind of cultural icons and figures. Um, until very recently, until the last five years, um, actually had a set of stained glass windows dedicated to Lee Jackson and Davis. Um, and they were put there by the United Daughters of the Confederacy in the 1950s. Um, and so even in our national icon, we had this mix of, it's, it's an Episcopalian uh, cathedral by by denomination, uh, mm -hmm. but known really as the the kind of a national cathedral. And then it had these kind of Confederate icons installed uh, there that this, this stood there for over 50 years uh, before they, they were finally removed. Wow. So there was one part in your book, The White Too Long, that stunned me. Uh, and I've had this burning question. So here it comes. Uh, I, I read this passage over and over and over again, in which you say that white supremacists would be more successful recruiting their ranks mm. in the parking lots of uh, white evangelical churches than anywhere else. And that phrase haunted me to no end. As you think about what made that possible, yeah. Uh, why do you why do you think white evangelical churches are so susceptible to white supremacist movements? Yeah. Well. Um, uh, so what's remarkable about that sentence? Um, I'm I'm with you. When I wrote that sentence, I had this. I had a very similar experience. Actually, it's the person who wrote that sentence. Like I wrote that sentence, and you know how when you're editing, you write. And then you kind of go back and read the paragraph you just wrote to kind of edit. And I, I remember writing that sentence and finishing the paragraph and then going like, wait, like, can that be right? Like, and I kind of went back and like read it um, again. Um, and, and the I've, I've got it right here. So I'll just, I'm just going to read it real quick. Um, uh, if you want to predict whether an average person is likely to identify as a white Christian and you could know only one attribute about that person, you'd be better off knowing how racist he or she is than how often he or she attends church. Or to put it more bluntly, if you were recruiting for a white supremacist cause on a Sunday morning, you'd likely have more success hanging out in the parking lot of an average white Christian church, evangelical Protestant, mainline Protestant, or Catholic than approaching whites sending out services at the local coffee shop. So that's the full um, quote. Now, what's remarkable about that is that that is at the end of a chapter that is grounded in data. Right. So this is not just me pontificating. Um, it was my way of trying to bring the results of the data down uh, to something close to home. And that's remarkably what the data shows. Right. Is that there is this independent relationship between today among Christians today uh, and white Christians today between holding more racist attitudes and identifying as a white Christian. Um, and it is stronger among evangelicals, to be sure, um, who you know, were more heavily based in the South. But here's it is remarkable in the data. It's not just white evangelicals. It's white mainline Protestants, so like the United Methodist and the Episcopalians. And it's also uh, white Catholics, um, uh, interestingly enough, who are really more northeastern and urban kind of constituencies, typically. Um, but but it's there as well. And this kind of you know, the power of kind of whiteness and white supremacy has kind of seeped in and seeped throughout, um, you know, white Christianity. Um, the one stunning thing I'll add here, though, is also about church attendance, um, because, you know, one one objection would be, well, maybe these are people who just like identify, 
I, are kind of Christian in name only. Like they identify with the label, but they don't really go to church. They're not really discipled. They're not parts of Sunday school, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and when I, but when I looked at attendance, um, remarkably, it, it made no difference among Catholics and mainline Protestants, uh, kind of non-evangelical Protestants. Uh, it did make a difference among white evangelicals um, in the data, but in the opposite direction that one might hope or want to believe. And that is that the relationship between holding more racist attitudes and identifying as a white evangelical, that link was stronger among those who attended services more frequently than it was among those who attended uh, less frequently. In fact, it was about four times as strong. Uh, so not just a little bit, um, but a lot, uh, which means that churches themselves, right, are the, vec are the vectors of white supremacy surviving um, in, in our theology. And if so, then the antidote to that isn't more church. <laughs> it's not more yeah. of that religion. It is an alternative uh, Christianity is really the antidote to that. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, clearly among white evangelicals, um, going to church more with the current way church is set up and the current thing that church is teaching uh, is not creating any distance between Christianity and white supremacy. Right. So... If possible, could you take our listeners uh, beneath just the data of that? What what do you believe makes that possible? Why why is a parking lot of a white Christian church such fertile ground for white supremacy? What 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 underlying theology mm -hmm. makes that possible? Yeah, I mean, you know, I had this experience too. That um, and when I've talked with people, I've had this experience of. People kind of saying, well, they look at the data if I, or if I'm doing slides, you know, I kind of demonstrate some of the data and, you know, people will say, well, like their reaction to people, how can this possibly be? Um, you know, but one of the things I do in the book is, I, you know, so I've got some data, but then I, I do a lot of historical work in the book as well. Because and again, this was like really getting my own head straight about my, our own history here. Um, and uh, once you have the history in front of you, you. Uh, the the data those findings actually become less surprising and and what I find that people tend to do is they shift from asking how can this be to kind of you know exhaling and saying well wow well how could it be otherwise right given this history you know and so part of it is an an overt commitment um you know uh that that like you said it 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 was a I start the book with the history of the Southern Baptist Convention right so uh you know being CBF, uh, you know, you you all know the the history of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, fairly well, but uh, I grew up in that convention. It wasn't until I was in seminary that I knew, for example, that 1845 uh, was when the, it began and that its main reason was to provide a place where the gospel could flourish alongside of enslaving other people based on the color of their skin. Like, that was the reason to be for the Southern Baptist Convention, which then becomes the largest denomination in the country by the 1950s. Right. Right. So when you realize that the largest expression of white Christianity in the country has that taproot, um, again, it becomes a little less mysterious, you know, and, and when you, even the, the more recent history, I mean, the number of churches that were, um, on the right side of history uh, with the civil rights movement, the number of white Christian churches, um, you know, we just passed Martin Luther King's birthday. 
Uh, and, you know, that letter from Birmingham jail, he was writing to white Christians who were kind of the moderates who right. were on the wrong side. Right. And, and saying, slow down, wait, um, you know, all of this and, and weren't on the side of, of saying, no, now's the time to kind of uh, create, you know, an equal society. Um, and, and so, again, the, the history is there on theology is make a quick point here. I think the biggest thing that has um, happened, and King describes this actually quite well. He, in the letter from Birmingham Jail, he says um, there's a line, there's a kind of section in that uh, that letter where he's kind of like dismayed or mystified, and he's and he he says like he he's kind of envisioning the skyline of Birmingham, Alabama, and like all these church steeples, right, mm-hmm. and saying like who are these people? Right. Worshiping in these churches. What is who is their God and what is their theology? Um, uh, And, you know, in in this this line at the end of this kind of powerful section, he he just says, you know, they're sitting. Who are these Christians sitting, um, sitting safely behind their anesthetizing stained glass windows? Right. And that is the role. uh, It certainly was true for the church I grew up in. that one of the main roles of, of, was to kind of keep that stuff out. Like we didn't talk about civil rights. We didn't talk about racial justice. And I was in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and in my childhood, I mean, I, in 1976, 21 years after 22 years after Brown v. Board of Education was when Jackson, Mississippi finally desegregated the public schools. And I remember I was in third grade uh, mm-hmm. when that happened. And what did our church have to say about that? Our Sunday school? Absolutely nothing. Right. Gave us no context for understanding why all these black kids were showing up at our school and why our everyday lives were going to look really different. And just 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 pretended like nothing was happening. Uh, You know, and and I think that that conspiracy of silence, you know, uh, is is a big part of it. Um, And and one of the ways you get away with that is to have a hyper individualistic uh, notion of salvation. Right. Where as long as me and Jesus inside my mind and my heart are okay. Um, you know, that's kind of the beginning and the end of Christianity, really, um, in, that, in that theology. Right. A, a hyper-individualistic Christianity that says it's salvation is a personal relationship, yeah. an otherworldly notion of salvation, you know, where it what really counts is after death. And that that paves the way, it seems to me, for this conspiracy of silence. I I like that phrase that it gives white churches cover and it also removes any impetus that we might have to speak to an injustice that is life and death for our brothers and sisters. Um, and, And also to your point, in a church when we often talk about history in terms of millennia, like the Civil War wasn't that long ago. Uh, yeah. The civil rights movement wasn't that long ago. And so that taproot isn't even all that long. I mean, it's we, we inherited this and uh, it was created in the not too distant past that we're living with. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, the fact that, you know, I still have, you know, this, this family Bible of mine has been handed down, um, you know, and it was that 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 Bible was printed in 1814, and it's it's um, you know, you know it's 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 a good few like four decades before the Civil War, right? But but that's still in our family's possession, you know, and it just got passed down. Um, you know, my my um uh yeah, I mean my parents in Macon, Georgia, uh, when they grew up in in Macon, Georgia, 
lived in a Jim Crow world, separate the African-Americans had to sit in the balcony, you know, and at the movie theater, sit in a different place at the train station, um, different cars for whites and blacks. Like, you know, it, that was, that was the world they grew. That's my parents grew up in that world, you know? Absolutely. So, so to penetrate that conspiracy of silence, it seems to me that we have some truth telling to do. And uh, I receive your weekly uh, email updates, your newsletters, which I would commend to our listeners a few weeks ago, your email or your update included the phrase, the sacred, the sacred work of white discomfort. And uh, that was another phrase that pierced my soul that I'm still thinking through the sacred work of white discomfort. And I wonder what that means in terms of us being willing to be people who tell the truth and pierce this veil of, of silence. Yeah, you know, that was also a really personal piece for me. Um, and, and so I, I've been <clears throat> writing since August, I, I've been trying to write um, weekly uh, at Substack. So it's for your listeners, it's robertpjones.substack.com. Um, and you can sign up and get it weekly uh, delivered. Um, and, um, and so I was, I was writing in response to all these bills that are popping up all over the country um, that are making the measure of discrimination white, literally white discomfort, right? And as odd as that sounds, right? if it makes a white person or a white kid uncomfortable, uh, if these bills get passed, that will be a grounds for disciplinary action against a teacher who's teaching it um, uh, and, uh, and, and potentially uh, a lawsuit, right? Uh, uh, so it's, it's making a legal definition uh, of what can be taught in our schools uh, to our kids uh, anything that makes a white kid uncomfortable. And I, I, I was reflecting on, you know, one, um, as a, just as a human experience, um, how odd that is, right? Because I started with sports. Right? I grew up playing soccer and pretty competitively. And, but anybody who's tried to excel at anything, um, you know, uh, that, that requires physical activity, um, you know, if you make a, a measure of discomfort, uh, the, the farthest a coach can, if you start being uncomfortable, you can raise your hand and said, sorry, coach, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. Uh, you're going to have to stop now. Uh, you're not going to get, you can imagine what kind of a football team or a soccer team or baseball team you'd field if you stopped every time one person on the, the team said, I, you know, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. Um, we used to have a coach, uh, that, uh, would ride around a golf cart and make us run. And if anybody dared ask him how long, uh, or how many laps or how much time he would say, you're going to run until I'm tired. Uh, as he's sitting on his golf cart, right? And and yeah. you just knew, don't ask. Uh, and you knew you're going to, when we started running, you knew you're going to be pretty uncomfortable by the time it was over with, but it was in the interest of health, right? And fitness. Right. And I think similarly, um, you know, historically, I mean, good grief, uh, as much as particularly Southern evangelicals pay attention to conviction of sin. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, nobody gets saved without discomfort. Right. If you're if you're a believer in like believers baptism and, and adults, you know, coming to the age of accountability and being able to reckon with sin, right. um, that entire process is built on discomfort. Right. Conviction is discomfort. It, it's being right. faced. You're face to face with something you don't like about yourself. Right. And a need to change. Uh, and and I think that's exactly what, you know, so it's so antithetical um, to people who are. And you do that because uh, it is the way that you grow, right? So even even after you're, you know, 
uh, quote unquote, saved and get, you know, discipleship should right. be uncomfortable, right? Uh, because right. it's growth. That's how we grow. And, and so this idea, it's just an anti-Christian idea, really. Um, you know, when you get right down to it, um, to say that um, we can't face a history, um, we can't face our own history because it's going to make us feel uncomfortable and we just don't want to be uncomfortable, is to say we don't want to grow. Um, right. Uh, we don't want to change. We're fine the way we are. And that's about as unchristian a thing as you can possibly say. That's right. Yeah. There's no no cross in that sentiment. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. And it's 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 illustrative of how white supremacy and, and whiteness still shapes these conversations in our in our country. Right. Like you're if if the primary concern is the comfort of white people, then you're still centering racial justice conversations around the white experience, which is, it's an indicator that we're still stuck in this rut of racial injustice. And it also seems to me that this plays into notions of reconciliation. Can, can we go there for a second? Let me just take Um, one one quick statement on that. But but the, the thing that, that is always missing here, I think is, why why aren't these people who most of the people supporting these bills, for example, are are the kind of leaders that wear their Christianity on their sleeve, right? Make a big deal out of being Christian and mostly evangelical. Um, why are they not concerned about what King was concerned about um, when he talked about the devastating effect on his kids of not seeing themselves represented, right, in 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 um, in American history? not seeing themselves represented in, in leaders. Um, it limited, right, who, who they thought they could be. And, and so why, why aren't these folks saying, well, what's going what's gonna, to what's gonna be the effect on children of color who only read a white history? Right. Um, what's going to be the effect on children of color who know that their great-grandparents were enslaved? And right. never hear anything about that in school. Um, right. I mean, it's just an alienating effect, right? Um, that if we're going to tell a story that begins in 1776 and has nothing but good things to say about the country, um, you know, those who have been harmed, uh, you know, by uh, by discrimination, by slavery, uh, segregation, um, they're not part of that story. Um, right. And and you know, so I, I just think like. You know, as Christians, like if we think about um, that, that should be a primary concern for us is uh, is where where do where do people that we know have been harmed historically, where, where do they see themselves in the stories they get to learn about who we are as a country and, and, and who we're going to be? Absolutely. That's exactly right. And, you know, there is a form of reconciliation in this country that seems to me so shallow and so hollow, and it, it continues to leave people out. There's no, no semblance of justice or equity in that reconciliation. Uh, and it's made me skeptical of using the language of reconciliation. What, what do we mean when we say that? And then there is the more what I would consider biblical and Christian notions of reconciliation, which is uh, a coming together and seeing each other as equals before God sort of reconciliation. But there is a merit of truth telling in the one that is absent from the other. And that's Mm -hmm. what we seem hell bent on avoiding today, 
which prohibits reconciliation more than it enables it, right? Yeah, I mean, this is also another thing that like we know, like this is something everyone inherently knows, right? Um, setting aside the issue of race and history, um, like we know in our own lives, when someone has like deeply hurt us, like that we're in relationship and they deeply hurt us, we know there's no way that relationship gets mended without somebody saying, I know what I did is wrong. I'm really sorry that I did that to you. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to do whatever I can to make it up to you. Then let's mend the relationship. But if they come back and say, you know, all that stuff that you know you did, the things that you lost that I got, uh, you know, let's just forget about all that, but let's right. be friends. Right? right. Um, I mean, we all know in our personal lives that that doesn't, that dog don't hunt, right. That doesn't fly. Um, and, and so it, it's a, you know, it's just mysterious that suddenly we think with racial reconciliation, that's going to work, right. That, right. that we're going to just say, you know what, let's just set aside the past. Let's don't talk about the past and let's just kind of come together. And, and, I, you know, I, I think frankly, um, you know, African-American Christians have been very, very patient with the white church. Um, but, you know, I, I do think they're not going to sign up for cheap grace um, on this point. Right. Um, you know, that, that I, I think there needs to be a kind of honesty here. And, and um, you know, I, I've sort of learned some things from Jennifer Harvey, uh, who kind of has written on this, this, this topic, um, and and other pastors, Scott Dickinson down in Macon, Georgia, um, you know, that I kind of studied for the book and and interviewed for the book and hung out with them a bit. Um, and you know what? What they he's basically said, yeah, I've because of the way that the word reconciliation has been hijacked, I've kind of stopped using it. Um, and I and I and and so one of the things I have come to is I, I really think that I like to to or the things I've learned um, is that I think most, if white Christians would focus on the work of repair, mm-hmm. repairing the dam- like truth telling and repair, mm-hmm. the reconciliation thing is going to take care of itself. Right. right. And, and in fact, our black brothers and sisters uh, and our native American brothers and sisters are going to tell us when we're reconciled. Right. Gotcha. Um, or it'll just organically happen uh, right. because of the work of the ongoing work of confession and repair. Um, and, but, but that, that's hard work. Right. And and it's not work you're going to be able to, to do without looking in the mirror in a way that, again, back to our other conversation, it's going to make you pretty, pretty damn uncomfortable. That's right. And and it's a it's a level of consciousness that says. Confession, repentance, restitution, repair are not just individualistic virtues in the Christian way, but those are communal virtues. Those, those save communities, those save peoples. If only we could learn to do that in the public arena and not just in the privacy of our own confessionals. Yeah. Um, maybe we could add that to our discipleship along the way. Yeah. But I mean, you know, looking, I think part of it is just a willful blindness, um, you know, to our own past. I mean, so, you know, take little rock and, and any other, any other major city in the country, right. um, you can see the results of explicit policies of racial discrimination in, in any statistical, you know, measure you want to look at. Poverty, health outcomes, uh, where people live, like it's still highly segregated. And this is not just in the South. This is L.A., uh, New York, Chicago, 
um, Minneapolis. Um, you know, this is not just a Southern thing. Every major city in the country is that way. And it's that way because there were explicit policies that prohibited uh, non-white people from living in certain parts of the city. And those home values were always less. Uh, and they and they were not able to get the kind of loans. Uh, they were exempt from GI bills uh, that, that white working class people got um, you know, after World War II. So there's like this whole legacy uh, they're right in front of us, right? Uh, right. Um, that we're, people pretend like, oh, this is just the way it is. Black people have always been poorer than white people. But, you know, that is a result of centuries of, of policies uh, that were very explicit and that were largely supported by white churches. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, oftentimes I like to try to give people a handle on something. We're talking about something so massive that has touched yeah. every aspect of our life, uh, both religion and uh, just our public life in this country. But I wonder if we could help people uh, because you're Baptist and I'm Baptist or your background is Baptist and uh, I pastor a Baptist church. I wonder if we could use some Baptist history in this country, as we've already done a little bit, just to help people get a handle on how racism has been embedded in our religious tradition in this country. Could you speak to the Baptist tradition um, specifically? Yeah, well, I'm probably already giving the most damning thing, and that is that the Southern, those who at least who trace their lineage down through the Southern Baptist uh, thing, uh, Southern Baptist branch of, of Baptist in America, um, you know, it, it, it was it was just explicit uh, that it was about protecting um, slavery. And and the dividing thing was was actually an, an appointment of a policy that the Northern Baptists had implemented uh, that said no, no one will be appointed uh, to be for to be a foreign missionary who owns slaves. Uh, and the Southerners said, all right, well, if that's the case, we're going to take our ball and go home. And we're going to create our own thing where this is not going to be a problem. Um, but right after that, um, you know, the flagship seminary uh, of Southern Baptist Southern Seminary, the main fundraising um, arguments uh, for doing that was to train up the next generation of ministers that wouldn't have these abolitionist hangups. Um, and because if we sent our, our good Southern boys up to Yale or Princeton or Harvard Divinity School, they're going to come back abolitionists. So when to keep them in the South or to avoid that problem, um, that's that's the explicit thing. Today on Southern's campus, there are buildings still named for slaveholders. Um, uh, the Broadman Hymnal, um, right, and Broadman Press, uh, that, uh, the, that word Broadman is made up of two last names, uh, John Broadus, Basil Manley. Um, and they stuck them together to make Broadman. Uh, it's the thing that printed all the hymnals. It's still a huge press for the Southern Baptists. Um, uh, both of those people were uh, slave owners, um, right? And uh, uh, Broadus was uh, quoted as saying, I'm an ultra pro-slavery man, Manly Sr., Basil Manley Sr., who was the first president of Southern, uh, president of the board at Southern Seminary, um, was, the, was the central chaplain to the Confederacy. He held the Bible when Jefferson Davis was sworn in as the president of the Confederacy and prayed this flowery prayer, uh, calling on God to bless the Confederate States of America. Like that's the DNA, right. uh, you know, here. And, and, you know, it would be hard to find. I mean, there were churches um, and there were courageous pastors, but the vast, vast majority of Southern Baptist churches and, and other Baptists in the South were entrenched in protecting Jim Crow and opposing desegregation of schools, opposing civil rights, 
Um, you know, my, I, I've told the story other way, but my, uh, it's not actually, not actually in the book. So, um, uh, but, but actually it was something that came up as I was talking to my parents after the book was published. Um, I found out that one of the roles of my grandfather, um, who was a deacon at East Macon Baptist church, um, was to stand on the steps of the church and prevent black people from entering the sanctuary on Sunday morning in the early 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a common, common practice. Um, you know, it happened in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, it happened all across the South. And this was not a wink, wink, nod, nod. This was a, at the deacons meeting, who's going to stay, you know, like who's going to stand outside this Sunday mm-hmm. uh, and keep our sanctuary segregated. And, and no one saw any conflicts um, yeah. with that. So I mean, it's, it's just, so clearly through, um, you know, there's just this clear through line that we're only just beginning uh, to really wrap our heads around. Yeah. I've often wondered about the the primal funding of some of those early institutions, right? And yeah. those funds that continue to trickle their way into church starts and church plants and minister salaries. And where, where did that money come from? And what would be the just thing to do with that today? Yeah. Uh, those, those are the questions that continue to haunt Upon us, I think. Um, so Second Baptist is a predominantly and historically white church, uh, though we have tried um, to do good work in terms of racial justice. I wonder what you see as the primary role of predominantly white churches in this work. Mm-hmm. What wisdom do you have to share with us in that regard? Yeah, um, uh, well, I always flinched at being the dispenser of wisdom, but uh, let me <laughs> tell you some things I've learned maybe just from watching other people do stuff. Um, you know, I, I do think uh, the fact that that you're on this journey is probably the most important thing. I, I, you know, when people ask me, what do we do? I, I guess I say, look, like do something, mm-hmm. um, you know, start local um, uh, and start with something. It almost doesn't matter what it is, uh, but you know, I, I one easy way in, I think, is um, or maybe two ways, easy ways in. One is to ask the question, why is our church located physically where it is in the city? Mm. Um, why is it here and not on the other side of the tracks? Um, why is it here and not, uh, you know, wherever? And, and no matter, I think, where, if it's an older historic church, there'll be stories about, well, this was the white part of town if it's a predominantly white church. And that's why we're here because this was zoned for white people um, and why we're not over there on that part of Little Rock, right? Um, If it's a newer church or one that kind of uprooted and moved itself to the suburbs as my church did growing up, why are we out in the suburbs rather than the original uh, plot of land we were on? And the answer is almost always because that neighborhood changed and had black people in it. Right. And now we're out here where all the white people picked up and moved. Um, And so I think asking those questions, um, you know, and why this church, you know, and why, yeah, why didn't you go over there? Right. And start the church instead of following everybody out to the suburbs. Um, So I think asking those kinds of questions helps us get to a more honest place um, about who we are. Um, And then I think the other, the other thing to do is kind of a little audit, right. Of, um, walk around and like look with new eyes about what do you see, right? So if, again, you know, I, a lot of Baptist churches don't really have stained glass with, but some of the older ones do or the more liturgical ones do. Mm-hmm. Do we have depictions of Jesus and the disciples or Moses, kind of biblical characters who are light-skinned, right? Are they white? Um, and, you know, I think for Baptists in particular who tend to have 
biblical literalist tendencies, that's one of the oddest things ever, right? Is to kind of exactly right. pick biblical characters with European skin tones, um, right. uh, you know, to kind of get honest about that. And why, why is that? And what can we do about that? There's one church I was talking to um, a few weeks ago that's uh, this wrestling with this. They have a really like beautiful, like Tiffany window, right? With um, very expensive historic windows, been like a hundred years of Jesus. And he's white. He's clearly white. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, what do they do? And so, you know, one of the things they're thinking about doing is actually um, just reassembling the window, like saving the pieces, reassembling the window and trying to come up with a, a more representative uh, depiction. Um, so not destroying it, not, you know, uh, th- there's lots of solutions, but I think that uh, children's literature is another place I think to pay attention to. Uh, children's Bibles tend to be pretty white. Um, uh, you know, Daniel, he's a white dude. Um, yeah. Solomon, white dude. David, white dude. Uh, mm-hmm. Moses, definitely white dude. You know, um, Abraham, absolutely white dude. Right. So you kind of just, what do you do with that? Right. Um, and kind of getting more, um, uh, getting more honest portrayals, especially kids. Like those images to get set right when they're pre-verbal, even um, preschool, um, uh, not pre-verbal, but pre-literate, where they're not reading. But those pictures stay with us, right? And and how we think of Jesus, I think, really, really matters for our theology in ways that you know are far below consciousness, um, right. you know. And so it's 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 really important. So there's, just, but I think it can be really practical. Um, the other thing I would say is that if your church is written. A history of itself, which in any church has probably been around more than 20 years is, you know, those are typically propaganda pieces that kind of tell stories about how great the founders were and, you know, all of that stuff. And, you know, I think they have their place, but maybe alongside of that would be writing a, a more critical history of the church and maybe where it missed the mark, right? And particularly around racial justice areas where it missed the mark, either through silence or, or outright complicity. Um, right. That's great wisdom at a congregational level. I wonder, uh, last question, would you have a word for any individuals who may not be rooted at Second Baptist? Um, I often say at Second, I hope anti-racism work is part of our discipleship, right? It it is part mm-hmm. of how we follow Jesus. It's not an addendum. It's not the gravy. It's the mashed potatoes, right? Uh, I wonder if you have a word to any listeners who might want to engage anti-racist work. Uh, what might be some first steps or something they could do? Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll say that I that actually occurred to me as I was writing the last book, I, I got you know you have these little epiphanies sometimes that, and when you have them, you think, oh, of course, right? But and then you think like, why why was that not clear to me before now? You know, and I had a number of those. One of them, um, I'm embarrassed to say, uh, is this simple idea about why we do this work. Um, you know, like I had always thought about this is that we do this because it's the right thing to do vis-a-vis our black brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's right. There's, that's not wrong. Right. But I think the thing that James Baldwin convinced me of um, is that we do this, we white people, we white Christians do this because of the way that white supremacy has distorted our own faith. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the thing, right? Is, 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 yeah. So do we owe things to, uh, you know, people that have been historically wronged by our institutions and our forebears? Absolutely. Um, but it's, it's about healing ourselves really at the end of the day, um, you know, too. And, 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 and from something that has remained so 
invisible and hard to get your head around um, because it's just in the water. Uh, and so I, I think that's that's the thing that is kind of really kind of stayed with me. And and the way that I've been able to do that as little as I have been, uh, frankly, I mean, I still I feel like I'm at the beginning of that process is by reading black theologians. I mean, it is one of the things that is really um, and, and not just theologians, but um, people like James. I mentioned Baldwin, but I mean, Baldwin has absolutely changed my life. Right. Um, and he died in the 80s. Right. Um, uh, and he had this great quote, though, that it's something he was being interviewed. And he said, you know, if I do my work properly, um, uh, you know, even after I, I die, when when I'm needed, it'll be there. The work will be there. And I I, I feel like in, in many ways that was true for me um, that that, um, you know, he showed up 20 years after he died. Right. And in a way that was like just right for me to kind of really help me. Because it just gives, you know, there's a there's a way in which we just talk to each other. We look in the mirror, we see people like us. Um, uh, but when you when you hear like African-American theologian, James Cone, uh, Howard Thurman, um, uh, contemporaries like Kelly Brown Douglas, uh, Dante Stewart, who's a still a, a seminary student down at, at Emory, but is just. Had an amazing book out, uh, shouting, shouting in the fire. Kelly Brown Douglas, a new book called Resurrection Hope. Um, uh, Eddie Gloud, who's got this great book on called Begin Again on J on James Baldwin and his theology. He's a, a religion professor at Princeton. Uh, you know, it's it's those seeing. So when you see white Christianity through non-white eyes, yes, um, it really it's challenging, um, but it it, it is. Uh, absolutely essential i think for getting anywhere uh, it just keeps you from walking around in circles i think is 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 what it does um right. i uh, at a personal level i resonate so much with what you just said i mean howard thurman uh has been gone for half a century and yet his work yeah. has profoundly changed my life and not just in terms of racial justice but in deep mystical ways of how i think about god and my neighbor um, Jamar Tisby has been a great yeah. friend to me and, and our congregation as a fellow Arkansan. Um, so there's so many great resources if you're interested in this work. Um, Robert, we really appreciate your presence on our podcast, but even more so your, your work. Uh, we would include your work on that list of helpful resources. Uh, if you've not read The End of White Christian America or White Too Long, we commend those works to you. Uh, hide their words in your heart. And um, if you're anywhere close to central Arkansas and want to be a part of a church that cares about racial justice, racial healing, and reconciliation that matters, um, check us out at Second Baptist Church. We would love to walk that journey with you. Uh, thanks again, Robert, and peace be with you. Yeah, and also with you. As you go... Go and love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Do so as if it's the most important thing in all the world, because it is. Thank you for listening to Because It Is. These are just some of the things that matter to us at Second Baptist Church downtown. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit us online at 2BCLR.com. That's the number two bclr.com and like us on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Brittany Stillwell and edited by Randy Schoenig with Fresh Air Media.